Access Division 33, the official podcast of Division 33 of the American Psychological Association, a group of professionals dedicated to science and practice in the area of intellectual and developmental disabilities and autism spectrum disorder. In each episode, we'll speak with a different member of our division, discussing their work and why it's important to the lives of people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and those who support them. And welcome to Access Division 33. I'm Dr. Rachel Fenning, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, Dr. Jason Baker will be discussing parent-child interaction and families of children with ASD. In addition to serving as host for several episodes of this podcast, Dr. Baker is an Associate Professor of Child and Adolescent Studies, and he is co-founder and co-director of the Center for Autism at California State University, Fullerton. Dr. Baker's NICHD-funded research focuses on how child and parenting factors combine to influence the development of children with ASD, with a particular focus on children's psychophysiology, emotion regulation, and challenging behavior. Hi, Jason. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, on this side of the microphone. Of course. So tell us a little about why you study parent child interaction in families of children with ASD. Well, I've always been interested in parent-child interaction. It's always fascinated me, and I think there's really something special about it. Uh, But my interest in studying it in ASD came about through my undergraduate work at the UCLA Young Autism Clinic, sort of the birthplace of applied behavior analysis, or ABA. And I guess there's a couple main things that solidified this interest. First, although we knew enough about the brain at the time to understand that social interaction in young children affected brain development, here with ABA we had a neurodevelopmental disorder of ASD where the primary treatment was social interaction, not medications, which could target the core symptoms of other brain-based behaviors like ADHD. So there's nothing like ASD to demonstrate the power of social interaction. Now at that time, I sort of felt like we had the therapy side figured out fairly well, not that there wasn't room for improvement, but we really knew little to nothing about parenting in ASD, other than trying to make the parents act like therapists, but I kind of wanted to believe that there was something special about the parent-child relationship. So on top of that, I experienced daily the confusion of the parents we were working with. They really wanted to know how best to interact with their children. And these were good parents. These were parents who would be doing just fine if their child were typically developing. And in fact, in some cases, some of the things that would have made them great parents otherwise would get them into trouble with their kids with ASD. They'd be trying to sensitively explain things gently to their children when they would misbehave, whereas a more behavioral approach actually made more progress with the child. A parent once told me that parenting a child with ASD is like studying the guitar for decades and then the night of your big concert being handed a banjo. Some of the things might translate, others would not, and importantly, you don't know what will and what won't. And that's a really important question in the field of developmental psychopathology, where there's this assumption that developmental processes may be both similar and different in clinical populations as compared to children with typical development. So I became very interested in what parenting behaviors might promote the development of children with ASD, especially in the emotional realm, since that's an area that ABA was and is still not great at. Um, At the time, there were very few of us studying parenting in ASD, and especially in emotion-related parenting because it was still kind of a sensitive topic given the extremely misguided and harmful early psychodynamic theories that proposed that bad parenting caused ASD. Now that's different now. You can study parenting in ASD without as much of a backlash, and I, I guess I'd like to believe that some of my work may have helped with that. 
Anyway, some early interesting work suggested that good parenting might be different for children with ASD. So, for example, a study by Van Eisendorm, a famous attachment researcher, actually found that sensitive parenting was unrelated to attachment status in children with ASD. Now, if there's one fairly consistent finding in developmental literature, it's that sensitive parenting should probably be related to secure child attachment. Maybe not always strongly, but it's a pretty reliable finding. So that, to me, meant that we needed to seriously consider the idea that parenting children with ASD might be different in important ways. Which made sense because we knew that these children tended to learn differently. That's kind of the point of ABA. So what parenting factors have you found to be important for children with ASD? Well, it's a tough question. I've always sort of assumed that a slightly more didactic form of sensitivity might be key, sort of a blend of ABA and what makes parent-child interaction so special, the bonding, attunement, enjoyment, and things like that. And I know that in your podcast, you talked about the power of scaffolding for children with ID and that it was more complicated in ASD. And I definitely think that that's true. We sometimes find that it can be important, perhaps early on and with regard to language development, um, as a 2010 study of mine found, along with some of the work of Michael Siller and others, and of course some of the intervention work with the Early Start Denver model. Um, I think the best answer right now is, isn't very satisfying, which is that I'm not really sure we know yet. Uh, even this type of scaffolding or sensitive structuring or similar interactive behaviors don't always seem to relate to better functioning in children with ASD reliably. And part of this is because with so many child-driven effects, uh, as you again mentioned in your podcast, you can't really figure this out with one-time cross-sectional data, so much more longitudinal research needs to be funded. Uh, also, we find that the effect of parenting behaviors in ASD may depend upon other certain, certain other child characteristics. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by that, specifically how parenting might depend upon child factors? Sure, definitely. So when I say that I study, quote unquote, parent-child interaction, I actually mean two things at once. Uh, The first meaning is, of course, that I study the social interaction between parents and children. But in our field, there's this kind of a second meaning of the word interaction. In statistics, an interaction occurs when something changes the effect of something else on a particular outcome. So in this case, it means that the effect of parenting on a child, which is what we really use to define good parenting, might depend upon certain child characteristics. So likewise, a certain child characteristic may or may not result in a particular outcome depending upon parenting. So some such investigations, think of it as gene environment interactions or temperament researchers refer to it as kind of goodness of fit. And one of my favorite studies of all time was was done by Kahanska in the 90s, and she measured a whole bunch of things about children. And these were children with neurotypical development and their um, interactions and relationships with their parents. And they did a traditional delay of gratification or rule violation task where the kids uh, were told not to touch something and then were left alone in the room. And what she found was that different parenting behaviors predicted whether or not the child would touch the forbidden object based upon whether the children's temperament were considered fearful or fearless. For fearful children, the best predictor of moral development in her study was the degree to which parents were gentle in their discipline. So when the kids did something wrong, they corrected them, but in a gentle manner that didn't overwhelm these sensitive kids. For the fearless kids, this did not predict. For those kids, the best predictor of moral internalization was actually the parent-child relationship. So presumably, the fearless kids, who would not typically be very concerned with the disciplinary outcomes, they didn't touch the toy because their mother told them not to, and they loved mom. 
So the gene-environment interaction and goodness of fit models are good, except we don't always understand the degree to which a child factor is actually genetic, per se, or how it is. And the notion of temperament is, is kind of circular. We generate these labels based upon behavior and then act like they explain behavior. So rather than temperament, per se, our recent investigations into these interactions have focused on um, child psychophysiology, which are these biological processes of arousal that are commonly thought to underlie what we consider temperament. So rather than talking about fearful or fear list kids per se um, based upon their behavior we can actually measure their physiological reactions and use that as a marker of their emotional reactivity and regulation tendencies and have you found that certain forms of parenting might depend upon particular child profiles in asd Basically, yes. And um, anyone with multiple kids can probably tell you that, that you can't really parent two kids in exactly the same way. Um, indeed, when I was working in ABA for ASD, um, I would often observe that I'd be working with two different parents on the same parenting behaviors, and they'd both be doing what I wanted them to do, but it might work for one child and not another. And in ASD, many sort of automatically assume that it's because um, one child is more affected by ASD or scores lower on intellectual ability than the other child. But much of our research challenges this notion. It's rarely IQ or ASD symptom level that determines whether a particular parenting behavior is effective, but rather these physiological or more temperamental patterns. So, um, for instance, we found that children who are more emotionally reactive may be particularly sensitive to harsher parenting, uh, not only including discipline, but also more subtle forms like criticism, as we found in our 2018 and 2020 publications. And in contrast, um, in 2017, we found that children who are less reactive, so Kahanska's kind of fearless kids, seem particularly at risk for challenging or defiant behavior. And we think this is because uh, they are less worried about the negative consequences and may also seek out or create situations that are more intense because they get bored more often, presumably because they're less reactive. Mm -hmm. So certain forms of parenting um, that are sensitive and effectively limit setting, but perhaps also channel some of this energy in more functional ways ways may be particularly important for these under-aroused children. So what's next for the study of parent-child interaction in families of children with ASD? Well, as I mentioned, and as you know very well, we, we need longitudinal studies in order to understand parenting effects. You know, indeed, it's not unusual that parents of more challenging children with ASD may sort of step up and improve their parenting such that when we examine associations at a single time point, you may actually find that better parenting is associated with more child problems. Like in a 2010 study I did with Daniel Messinger at the University of Miami, uh, this can be really misleading. So we need to follow these dyads over time in order to see how things play out. Um, I also think that we need to better understand when and under what conditions parenting can alter emotion regulation in kids with ASD, and in particular, these physiological systems. Um, so for example, we have some recent evidence from our lab that some aspects of parental emotion socialization may relate to arousal patterns in these children. Now, it could just be that the parent's responding to the child, but it may also mean that some of these more biological processes may be open to parental socialization. And, and this has actually been suggested by um, Theodore Bouchain and colleagues for children with ADHD, but we're, we're doing it with kids with ASD. And finally, my newest kick is to um, advocate for more emic approaches to the study of parenting in this population. So we, we too often try to adapt existing ideas for understanding families of children with ASD, or worse, we don't adapt them and then make too many assumptions that the processes will operate similarly. Uh, perhaps our efforts are maybe better served by stepping back a bit and really trying to understand the unique challenges and strategies specific to parenting children with ASD. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like things are pretty complex. 
Do you have any simple strategies for parents of children with ASD regarding their interactions with their children? Uh, sure, I guess maybe three things for now. So first, watch your criticism. It's totally understandable to have these attitudes, and it may even be a part of a perspective that could benefit the children in some ways, say by having high expectations for your kids. But the evidence right now is pretty clear that this can be problematic if it's too high, um, especially if your child with ASD is fairly sensitive or emotionally reactive, um, we found. Uh, second, listen to Dr. Fenning, <laughs> listen to your podcast um, about scaffolding. Uh, the combination of teaching and sensitivity seems to be very powerful for children with ID, certainly, and for some children with ASD, so particularly those who are less emotionally reactive or might be described as fearless. Um, scaffolding may be particularly important for those kids. Which brings me to the third, which is that both of the above seem to depend to some extent upon the emotional profile of the child. Um, so my third piece of advice is to know your child. Although we have many skills in parent training, for example, that are fairly universal, the relative importance of each and the manner with which they are implemented may depend upon what type of child you're trying to help. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts today and of course for your many contributions to the field. Great. Thanks for letting me step onto this side of the mic. It's been fun. Absolutely. Please tune into our next episode when we interview another leader in the field of IDD and ASD research. If you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode, please visit our Division 33 website at www.division33.org and use our contact page with the subject line podcast. To all those professionals working in the field, thank you for the work you do. And to those individuals with IDD and ASD, and those who support them, we're here to help.